0: Power. We are out to transform trauma system wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month we focus on one system and each episode we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning,
1: everyone, and here to... Join me for another episode of Collective Power is Pastor Daniel Hughes. Good morning, Daniel. How are you today?
2: Good morning, Rita. I'm doing well. How are you?
1: Good. Good. It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you for saying yes to being on the show.
2: Sure. It's good to be with you too.
1: Mm -hmm. Today, our theme is along the lines of the theme this month that has been choosing love over fear. And I invited you. And before we dig into the topic, I'd love you to just give our listeners a story about yourself that gives us a little bit more of an idea of who you are and why this is important to you.
2: Yeah. So my parents came up from the South, from Mississippi and Alabama, and uh, moved to Ohio, a small town called Lima it's probably about the city itself, probably about 35% African-American. And so when I was like six months old, they moved out of the city to the country because they, they wanted land. They wanted animals. They wanted gardens. They wanted land. And so I grew up kind of in two worlds. I grew up in this rural community, country, all white. And then I spent a lot of time with family. Church was in the city. The weekends we were in the city. And so I kind of had these two little these two worlds. And so I think I really uh, developed, I say that inside of my heart and my soul, is kind of that liminal space. Like I I live in the middle, like that's what, I've lived in these different worlds and never really felt like I fit in anywhere. Having to deal with that kind of not belonging was one thing, but on on the other side of it, it, I think it has given me a perspective and some skills that have been really helpful for me in my adult life and also helpful to organizations that I'm a part of and other relationships because I know what it is to be the other. And I also know what it is to other, and so I think that kind of the work that I'm that I'm into now is about co-creating with real people the world we need, and uh, that takes a lot of flexibility, a resilience, love, honesty. It takes a lot. So that's kind of little you know where I've come from. I did uh, some undergrad at a Mennonite university, so I had this kind of really eclectic kind of. Christian or faith traditions that I've been a part of. I've worked with Methodist Church. I've pastored a non-denominational church as well as the Methodist Church. And now I'm doing faith organizing. So trying to organize faith communities across the spectrum for um, racial and economic justice.
1: Daniel, you are a pastor and an organizer. And until I met you, I didn't even know that could coexist in the same sentence, right? So could you tell us a little bit more? You just kind of started mentioning it. Tell us a little bit more about, oh God, there's so much I could ask you about that. But like, tell us how those two pieces come together for you.
2: Yeah, I didn't expect a pastor. That wasn't what I was planning on. My parents planted a church. When I was young, so I grew up in that church plant. And then my father got got sick. He had cancer, multiple myeloma. And uh, by the time we found out, it was stage four. And so he declined rather quickly. Uh, He passed away and I was there trying to help my mother. They were co-pastoring. So I was trying to help my mother kind of keep the doors open and keep things running. And so in that process of helping, I kind of felt this call that I was to lead people of faith. Like I felt like that was something that was important to me. And at the time, it was kind of like, well, then that means you need to be a pastor, even though I never really felt like, again, I can do the role, I can do the job, but it's like in my heart, I felt like there was more to me, like I can do this, I want to take care of people, I want to, you know, not take care of people, but in terms of being caring for people's souls, if you will, that was important to me, but I never felt like it totally covered me. And so I've always done a little something outside of the church. So I was teaching in the university for a while, and then I worked for a housing authority for a while. So I was always trying to find this kind of these two worlds, like that whole thing I was saying earlier, I'm used to being mm-hmm. in two different world. Yeah. And so it was in 2008 when an unarmed black woman was shot and killed by a white police officer in Lima, where I was pastoring the church. And at the time, my mindset was grow the ministry, grow the church, because that was kind of the thing that was what a successful church did. And so you, t- you know, you look after your congregation and kind of do that thing. And so we were doing that, we were growing. And at the same time, I also had this heart and this feel for the neighborhood. Like I just like I think we need to be more in the neighborhood. Yes, take care of the congregation. But I felt like there were relationships out there and people out there that I wanted to be connected to. And so as I was starting to look and kind of turn our ministry kind of outward focus, that shooting occurred and I got pulled right into the the midst of that that drama by an elder pastor who said it was time for me to kind of get involved and time for the city to know who I was. And I'll never forget Tarika Wilson was her name and her death and the way in which she died in that justice system that we had in Lima left an impression on me and I could never shake it. And so we got to the, probably the fall, the end of summer, beginning of fall, and the officer wasn't indicted there were no charges that he got nothing. It was basically uh, the court, the grand jury was like, there was no wrongdoing mother of five. I remember feeling coming out of the courtroom, feeling like the community didn't have an opportunity to even extend mercy or forgiveness to this person. Like the the courts just took it away. Like just like her life didn't matter. And I remember walking Mm -hmm. away thinking like, do our lives even matter? And that was in 08. And so I started to organize white clergy and black clergy because we didn't have relationships even then. And so I was trying to figure out how do you find common ground and unity? And so I was doing that instinctively. And then when I moved to Cincinnati, there was another shooting kind of got pulled into it again. And I, at that point I was like, I can't ignore this. I went all in and have since uh, stopped pastoring full time. I'm no longer in the pulpit on a Sunday. I help support other churches, but I'm doing full-time organizing because I just feel like the church needs to be reorganized. I think faith needs to be reorganized, but if it's going to have a voice and have any kind of uh, credibility in the world post-COVID. So.
1: Faith needs to be reorganized. Mm. Tell me more.
2: Mm. Yeah. I mean, the long and short of it, I think, is that you know religion has held This power, this sway over society for a very long time and has a lot of resources, has a lot of money, has a lot of property, but doesn't have the hearts of the people. And Hmm. so in terms of putting together practices that are meaningful, repetition, right, like in order to help give people form and meaning in their lives, like it has that, like it has that history to do that. But I think the things that we're majoring on, the things that, that we have made important I will say there's a side right now, in at least in Christian circles, that's really organized and organizing for their particular values. And there are a number of people who are bemoaning the fact But I'm like, if the other side doesn't organize for their values, then you don't have the power to bring about the world that you believe in. And so I think there are a lot of people who believe that a lot of people are taking risks and I call that faith. For me, faith is believing that things can be otherwise. So I see a lot of people living not accepting their conditions, they're not collective. There's not a collective that where people are finding resonance with others, realizing they're not alone, having collective power, sharing decision-making, sharing resources, those kinds of things. And so I think faith has that, like religion has that or has had that, but has gotten maybe lazy or apathetic, I don't know. And so it needs to be reignited and see if faith is even relevant. I mean, see if people, see if it still matters to people. And I think it does, but I don't think that faith communities or religion can continue to act like it's the only show in town. Like it's, you know, it's got this kind of corner on the market. So, so we'll see. Hmm.
1: There's so many places we could bring this conversation and I find my struggling with which path to take, right? (laughs) I guess first, I want to say that You're helping me reflect on the fact that I was raised Catholic, and one of the reasons why I walked away from Catholicism and ultimately Christianity is because I couldn't reconcile what I was hearing, learning, teaching even, because I taught Sunday school in another Mm. life, with what I knew happened during enslavement, Mm. and the pivotal, reinforcing, strengthening role that the, the Church, and in particular the Vatican, played in establishing genocide in the Americas and establishing and perpetuating enslavement and as core of what now is the U.S. economy. Like, mm-hmm. the church mm-hmm. played a really critical role in that. When I started learning about it and learned enough, I just couldn't reconcile the two, and I walked away from the faith. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think part of what I hear you saying is that if I had been part of a church that was also organizing right Mm -hmm. Uh, organizing to i don't know if i could say compensate but maybe reconcile Mm -hmm. right with this rough Mm -hmm. history and it wasn't just me and island talking to the wind about how awful the church had been yeah if there had been some organizing component to it i probably wouldn't have walked away from it
0: yeah Yeah.
1: given that you know i was the kid that at 13 like confessed every day and said three rosaries a day you know like i was the kid that everybody was trying to make a nun right because they were like oh my god i see a vocation in her i see her and then you know this catholic church that's absolutely starved for vocations and is basically going um all around the world and in particular in the global south for vocations because there are almost no vocations in, in the global north So there was this starving sense around me of like, yes, she's a vocation. She's it. She's it. And then I ran away from it as fast as I could. But I wonder if the church was actually an organizing church. And if it was part of a movement of reconciliation, I would have stayed. You're helping me both realize that and recognize that.
2: No, that's good. I look at I think Jesus was a community organizer. I don't think <laughs> yes. he was like I, he wasn't a you know yes. he organized the community. And, you know, as things evolve, right, there are people always trying to grab power. And so to move from I say you move from something that's organic and then that organic thing kind of becomes an organism, and then there is a decision to turn that organism into an organization, and then that organization can be institutionalized. <clears throat> as soon as I think you institutionalize a thing you run the risk of, of losing a lot for the sake of maintaining said institution. And so community organizing holds things rather, rather loosely, that there are no forever enemies, there are no forever friends. It's kind of like, what are we facing as a community? And we, we pull together our collective resources and power, to solve whatever our, our issues are of the day. To me, it emphasizes more about the relationships between people. And as you said, like when you're when you can't reconcile, so often the churches try to sweep things under the rug, and not just this church. I feel like that you know that was a, uh, I mean the whitewashing of history, right? Like that's America,
1: absolutely, uh,
2: right? Like there's a denial to me, which is really the opposite of what I've even seen in scripture. Like you look at like King David, like his life is just hanging out there. You see his family struggles, you see his personal struggles, right? Like it's not this clean cut kind of thing, but somehow. In purity culture, in this manifest destiny, in this, like you said, this doctrine of discovery that, right, all of that, that the Catholic Church sort of ordained, and then you connect that religious power with political power, military power. It's hard to release that when you're drunk on power.
1: Yeah, and I would argue that what we now call white supremacy has its roots in Christian supremacy. Mm Mm-hmm. When I wrote the book, I didn't want to go with Christianity because it was like I was going at everything else. But when I was looking at like the seeds and the intentions that our systems were founded in, clearly whiteness didn't exist in the 1400s, right? Like it's a concept that we made up later. There was some prejudice around light and dark, right? The Bible has plenty of references, you know, to dark is evil and light is as good, right? Like we had those concepts, as generic concepts, but race as associated with superiority, inferiority of some human beings over another that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, it was actually a sense of superiority fueled through religion, right. Mm -hmm. And Christianity and Christians feeling that they were superior in particular native Americans when they Mm -hmm. first arrived, feeling their superiority and then creating all these institutions based on that superiority. Mm -hmm. Um, so to your point about church and state merging and the corruption when it becomes an institution, part of it is that, that superiority as of Christian merged with race, right? And so mm-hmm. you have these two concepts that have become really critical in our modern world, race and religion that get bound to state power. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: And then you basically kind of have this, I don't know, I'm thinking at it almost as a triad. Right, that becomes just very, very difficult to destabilize Mm -hmm. because it becomes so essential to everything. And I'm going to take a few steps back. What I love about what you had said, though, is that there's a way you were framing social justice because you're also looking at it through this spiritual lens, through this religious lens. That you're saying, I love what you said, the quote you said that. A lot of our churches have buildings and resources, but don't have the hearts of the people, right? And which means that, you know, I mean, I know there are some activist churches, like individual activist churches, but we don't see at least like I would say on the left, we don't see this mass movement of churches organizing together for social justice. And the last time we saw that was the 60s, right? Which was Martin's kind of visionary thing around a uh, progressive and activist black church, which also has a very long tradition. Malcolm didn't make it up. But where I was going with this is that, yeah, like the church not having the hearts of the people, like there's something there about us not anchoring there anymore, while at some point we anchored there. And it doesn't necessarily have to be religion. I don't consider myself religious anymore, right? But there's a dimension of humanity which is spirituality, and depending on where you are on the spectrum, you can say that's bigger or less. I would argue we're spirit first, and then bodies, right? And so there's just, there's just something there about like the church no longer being our anchor and not like the, the church not having our hearts, but us also not being able to bring our heart, right? Like bring our struggle, bring the tough times. I don't even know if there's a question in there. I just offer, that's the reflection that's coming up for me.
2: You stirred up Micah six, eight in my mind, it says question that the prophet is presenting to the people. And, and he says, you know, God has already shown you what is good and what God requires. And that's to do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with God. That's, that's the quote, right? Like, so, you know, people are like, well, what does God really want? Micah says, you know, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And I think, you know, it was Cornel West that says that love is public, justice is love in public, is what he says. Justice is love in public, right? So then if that's what, if justice is what love looks like in public, then what does love look like in social settings or associations, which I would include churches? It looks like loving mercy, I think. Right. So there's the individual thing that looks like an individual walking humbly with one's God or one's spirit or however you say that. Like there's a side of you that no one will ever see. Right. There's that side that keeps you should keep you kind of grounded on the earth, keep your feet to the ground because you know yourself. Right. And if if you have someone who you who you can trust with, you know, your shadow side, if you will, with all of you, if you have a person or people that know all of you, they can kind of keep you humble. I always think like family does that no matter what you accomplish in life. there's always a family member that just likes to remind you that you're just little so-and-so or whatever, right? Remember when you did that? So you have the humility piece. That's your personal. But when it comes to social, the social relationships, the social fabric, and I can say more about my problem with COVID and social distancing, but the church was responsible for, or at least chose to be responsible for holding those relationships. Faith communities held social relationships. That's where people learn to be social. That's where a lot of folks learn to to socialize. Whether that was good or bad, that's what it it held That And then uh, in COVID, it was like, well, uh, going to church and being in those relationships isn't essential. And as a matter of fact, we should socially distance, not physically distance, but we should socially distance. And so this very social fabric and, and where one can learn how to be merciful, how to receive mercy. And I think this is what I was saying about the court system was that there wasn't an opportunity for us to even extend mercy to this person who murdered someone, like, regardless of how we want to put it in laws and all the other, like, you, you murdered an innocent woman, unarmed woman, holding her one-year-old child. You shot the baby's finger off as you put three bullets in her chest. You thought that the baby was a gun. That's the storyline. And I'm like, that seems wrong. That seems inappropriate. You know, you're well-trained, all these things. And that seems a bit much, seems like you did something wrong, but we didn't even have the opportunity as a community to extend mercy. I don't think that the law is trying to do that. I think the law is trying to bring about justice. I think it's in the public setting, but the churches and associations or clubs and civic groups, all those things that used to hold those relationships, people aren't investing in them. So the church is the one place but I see that happening in a lot of other groups, trying to figure out how do you increase membership? I say this, I'm a Gen Xer. And I say, well, When you sacrifice your children for the economy, which means, you know, we were the latchkey kids. We were the ones coming home and unsupervised and figuring life out on our own. We didn't really have those social relationships. We would show up physically, but they didn't have our hearts. And I think that that's what we're seeing. When those children who were neglected become adults, and we're now those adults, and you're asking for us to buy into those whatever, you know, work for 30 years and you'll get this good pension. All the things that we saw, we had the Enron scandals. We saw family members who you know, dedicated their lives to jobs, churches, whatever. And we saw the scandals. We saw those folks get um, get lied to. And lives and families were turned upside down. So the church is one place that I see it, but I, I think I, in terms of who actually has our heart, I don't think we're giving our hearts away to very many places, socially speaking.
1: I also wonder, I was reflecting on this from my personal story yesterday, and I wonder if it's more of a generational thing, because... <laughs> um, Although I wasn't a latchkey kid, I felt emotionally like I was, right? Because I felt emotionally that I had to grow up alone. My parents were focused on, you know, work and food and things. They were focused on things they weren't focused on. And so what I wonder is, is it that we actually became the generation of helpers where we, because we were always helping. We didn't actually know how to run for help. And so part of that social distance that you're talking about and not having our hearts is actually us. And then our generation is the one that kind of went away and discovered how we could heal, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's the characteristic of Generation X is generally to have gone away and just gone to heal. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I would argue that we're in phase historically where we need to come back.
0: Mm -hmm
1: an elder, the next generation, Mm -hmm. whose job it actually is to take on our society and teach them how to not compromise themselves for the movement. Mm -hmm. I wonder about that. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good I tend to agree that, yeah, like, the priorities shifted. I'm thinking about even the show, the, the popularity of the show Friends. Like that wasn't necessarily my show, but right, like that—that was that. Yeah, that desire for those relationships Mm -hmm. that came out of a generation. I think it is a generational thing. I think it's a generational feature, and we found ways to show up for each other and heal each other and heal ourselves. But we haven't taken responsibility for eldering in this kind of in this moment. I I said that uh, Gen Xers are the man now. Like whether we like it or not, you know, we were railing against the man. We were subversive, right? Now we got to figure out how do you actually govern? It's like, I don't want to govern. I'm like, I'm not, you know, no, you're in that position of power. Like you're yes. that one now, you know?
1: Yes, we are that
2: uh, one. We're that one. And we're so one it's like the we, Gen
1: Zers are saying, can't you see it? Can you see that this doesn't work? Can you see the system is broken? And we're and, like, well, if you want to keep getting funding. <laughs> right, right, you know, right We're right. the ones doing that now. We're the yeah. ones doing
2: it, and it's like, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, time out. So
1: uh, I, I wanna in inside of what you were saying, this call to eldership, right? Which mm-hmm. is it's completely connected. But I wanna connect two dots. So that is eldership is kind of where we are now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then before you gave us this really strong image of um, the woman being killed with her son in her arms, right? Mm-hmm. And you said this really strong statement. I wanna just pick up again we as a community didn't have a chance to even show mercy or give mercy. I'm not sure what verb you used there. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious to know, in your mind, what does that even look like? Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think of mercy as a practice. I think it's a practice. We don't know how to practice mercy. You're saying in that example or just in general?
1: However you want to take it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Whichever direction. Yeah,
2: so this is what I would say, like, as I think about faith communities, right? Like this is where a person brings herself, himself to this space. And with all their craziness, with all of their brilliance, like they just bring who they are to this place. Right. And that faith community or that, that association is the place where we agree. We establish norms together. We should have shared values. We should have shared norms and, shared expectations, and we should have a process for restoring someone who breaks the norm, who falls short of the expectation or the agreement. And so for me, the practice is when someone comes into said organization, said association, this is our ethos. This is what we're about. Not that it's the best or it's the right. This is kind of the way we do it. And it's very clear kind of how we move. It's very clear and you can choose to link up with us or not. And if you do, we know that most likely you'll break a norm or we will break a norm. And when that happens, we have a way of restoring. And that's what mm-hmm. I felt like in Lima It was like, it's just like, you know, that that power, that authority, that opportunity was just taken from us by some grand jury. So, you know, we don't even know those people. We're like there weren't opportunities for us to even have conversations with anyone, mm-hmm. anyone. It's all behind closed doors, right? And, and you just get this verdict. Like it's this verdict from on high. And it's just this feeling of being robbed of your agency. And so I think that communities that can restore agency, that can acknowledge that you come as a full human with questions and with wounds and with scars, and we create the space and we develop the practices for us to show up socially. What does it mean to be social? I don't think America has ever been credible when it comes to being social like you said earlier, in terms of the way that faith communities, religion was the, you know, the seed of racism was in the soul of, of America through religion. It was placed there, you know, it was sown there. And so I think churches, I'll say specifically in my context, I think churches are the place where we move away from this model or this assumption that the people in the pews are these empty vessels. And the person up front has all of this wisdom and knowledge needs to just pour into those empty vessels. There was a time when the philosopher or the priest or the teacher was the smartest one in the village or in the community or in the church. And so, yes, they were the most literate. That is no longer the case. It's just no longer the case. And so the person up front just putting people in these pews, right? Just that, that whole thing. There's not even
1: an opportunity to share what you know.
2: To share, to practice anything other than we come in like, like sheep, like animals, (laughs) we sit them down, right? Like, and I, and I'm not like, I love the church, but it's just, we've got to re uh, construct, rethink, reimagine the way in which we interact and and develop new practice.
1: I remember when I was about probably 19 or 20, like fresh still in sociology, getting my degree. And um, this nun had come on the pulpit and done an announcement to gather money for Africa. And I cringed because the condescension, the saviorism, the stereotypes, which was similar hierarchy, right? Like we have it all, they have nothing. And uh, I remember I, I went after service and I pulled the nun aside to tell her that her I'd like her to reconsider her message because everything that her message embodied was going to make immigrants lives in Italy, a living hell because Mm. people were going to go outside and then mistreat immigrants based on these conceptions of Africans as inferior and having nothing and all that. And I remember the moment in which after church, like I was even deciding to basically overcome the boundary between the pew, (laughs) right? And the front of the church. And that was probably lessened for me because I prepared readings on Sunday. I played in the choir. I I led the choir, right? So I was very familiar with passing those boundaries physically. Mm -hmm. And yet I remember this moment, or I remember just as you were speaking, being terrified. And like, how much courage did it take to leave the pew to tell the person who was speaking from the altar, I'd like you to reconsider your message. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yes, even the space is designed for there to not be a contribution, for there to not be critique. So many people think of love as weak. I think our vision of love has been distorted by Hollywood maybe and many other things where we see love as the easy route right and so to your point about mercy which you're really having me reflect on because grace is a word i use a lot but mercy isn't really a word that i use a lot that i and i don't haven't thought a lot about mercy but i see grace and mercy as an extension of love ultimately and so what do you say to folks who see that as the soft way out
2: Huh? Oh, see, love is a soft way out or mercy. You're saying love or mercy? Yes,
1: yes. Whichever one you want to lean on. I see them as connected. Mm.
2: A person is in a family or has had other relationships that you're responsible for. So maybe you're taking care of a, an elderly parent or grandparent, or maybe you're taking care of children or maybe there's a your significant other. If you start to dig into why you do some of the stuff you do for that person, I think love is there. And so some of the sacrifices that we make, which we wouldn't make that for anyone else, right? You ask yourself, why, why would I do that? Why would I get up at 3 a.m. and take care of this child? Or why would I visit my loved one in the condition that they're in? Why would I, I remember when my father was, was ill and he wasn't able to take care of himself. And he was a real big, strong man. He was really self-sufficient, independent kind of guy. And that the cancer just racked his body. And he was really weak. And I remember I was in California and I came back. He had all this dignity, but he couldn't take care of himself. And and I had to wash him. I remember having to wash my dad and helping him take care of himself, like, right, Uh, in a very private way, right? And I remember my dad saying to my mother, and she told us the story that he didn't know if his children loved him because he always worked. And so he always struggled to believe that he was worthy of love. He came from Mississippi, right? So everything he did was like he was running from the South to build a better life. And so he was about that. And he loved, he just, he wasn't real verbal with it. Like he loved, he was a acts of service kind of person. So he's going to take care of your vehicle. He's going to make sure that there's food on the table. He's taking care of bills. He's, you know, he's buying property for fa- Like that's his thing. His thing is, was acts of service. He wasn't an affectionate kind of person. So he didn't know whether or not like the love was reciprocal because we didn't have anything to offer him really. Right. Like we're no longer doing chores for him. So we're all older. And and it was when our when the kids came around as he was coming to the end of his life and showing up for him. And he realized in that moment that the love that he poured out was being returned to him at a time that he needed it. Um, that's not weak. There's no, there's nothing weak or soft about that. That takes courage. And so I think that, um, there's an idea around love in scriptures that says this term agape love, some people call it unconditional. Martin, Dr. King called it unconditional love. But there's another sense that this agape love is a preferential love. Like there's a preference, like God has a kind of a preference for. (laughs) And I think of love like that it has a preference. And when it's locked into your heart, it aligns heart, body, and mind. I think love is what brings things in alignment. It syncs things up. And then the things that we then engage in, whether we call it love or not, it has that spirit. It has that seed. And so I think what Dr. King talked about nonviolence, that kind of love, I still struggle with that, but ideally I like it, but I really, I struggle with that practice. But anyway, yeah.
1: So why is it important that love drive our movements versus anger or fear or something else?
2: Yeah. Cause I think fear involves the torment like in my experience, like I'm a head type. So my way of survival was like, it's fear based. So, right. Like I come into a room, I'm looking for the exits. I'm trying to read all the body language. I'm doing, that's ridiculous. What fear produces in the body. Like I couldn't sustain that. Like it wasn't good for me. It was too much stress on my body trying to, you know, read into why people were saying this and looking like that. So what were they thinking? And now I got to figure out, you know, how to get around them and be subversive here. And it's like, love just to me love just shows up this is what i have this is who i am and works from that a more authentic place love doesn't have to pretend love again that passage in first corinthians 13 where where the writer of of that epistle he kind of lays out or the writer lays out love and then goes through all this and i could read it but it just I'm like, it, it's all of that. Love suffers long. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It doesn't practice wrong. It doesn't want to hurt people, right? Like, I think it was Jesus that said that if we love, we don't even have to worry about the law. Like, the law doesn't even, wouldn't have any authority over you if you practice love with one another. So if I love you, I'm not going to rob you, right? If I love myself, I'm going to actually take a day of rest. That's up there with don't murder, right? <laughs> like, rest, just that. Like, if I love myself enough, I'm going to find a day to rest. I think love, I think it is the answer, but I think it's so much more complex than simply this romantic, squishy infatuation. I think it has levels. That's the way I think of it. Like I have this unconditional love for everyone in the world, but unless you come into my orbit, I may never know you and I may, we may never be able to really refine that love and define that love and nuance that love. But as people get deeper into your life, was it the BGS? How Deep Is Your Love? Uh, PJ Morton has a, a version of that. I think it's that. The question is, how deep is your love? And once you realize where one's love ends, if we're just going to be infatuated, if we're just crushing on each other, great. Yeah, we got, we got a puppy kind of love. But there are other people who have like that s- sibling love. And then there are other people who have this deep romantic love. And there are other people who have this long-lasting, goes-through-anything kind of pragmatic love. I think that there are just levels to it. And... I think I, and I think that people are after it. I think we're searching for it. I think everybody wants it.
1: So you have a saying that you said have that power is neutral.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: I want, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, and then we'll come back to love.
2: Yeah, power doesn't have a doesn't necessarily have a value. It Depends on what one does with it. And I, and I think it was uh, French philosopher Michel Foucault who talks about that power is all relational about it's all relational and so the fact that we exist right like a baby a newborn and infant has the same amount of possibility of, of power that i do now education life circumstances your own development all those things can change what you have access to and how you might be able to do this or that or the other but in terms of power itself it's not a i don't think of it as, as a positive or negative it just is and it is the ability to move things and change things. And, and I would include organized things. And so my question then is, what are you doing with your power? And so if we're talking about systems of domination, which I would include Christianity, patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, all the systems of domination. That to me is based in fear. Those systems of domination are not based in love. They're based in fear. And they're not going to produce the kinds of communities that I believe in and and the relationships that I want to see. So I think that the love, a love movement organizing around love creates a different set of systems, creates a different set of uh, circumstances and opportunities. And so we know what fear looks like, but what does love look like when it's systematized? And so I think that that's part of the project. And I think that as a Gen Xer, my relationship to power has been an authority, right? Like it's not It hasn't been healthy. So I've always wanted to avoid it. There may be others who have tried to avoid it, but we can't. Like we actually have to embrace the fact that we have power. We have positions of power. White supremacy, white folks have privilege or power. And the question is, how are you leveraging that for those who don't? Like it's not a matter of I, I wish I didn't have it or I feel guilty because I have it. or No, it's like as a male in a patriarchal society, I have a degree of power. So the question is, what do I do with that instead of being irresponsible or ignoring it or avoiding it? bypassing it. Like, so
1: are we letting fear drive our power? Or like, are yeah. we letting love drive our power? It,
2: yes, right. That's right.
1: Like power is a tool of love.
2: It's a tool of love. Or fear. Yeah. And we know what it feels like, though. We know what that, that tool of fear looks like. What does it look like in the hands of love, though? Mm-hmm. I think it's there's a maturing that happens with love. Like you have to grow up. That writer in First Corinthians says that at the end of that, he describes love, or she, whoever, uh, describes love. Well, I guess it was he, because he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I acted like a child. He, and then he says, but when I became a man, I put away those childish ways. And, and then he says to the people, he says, now let me show you a more excellent way. And I think he was saying that love is a more excellent way, but it's risky. It takes courage. It takes humility. It takes a lot of what we don't value socially or publicly, in America anyway. I think there's a more excellent way.
0: Hmm.
1: It was an absolute honor to have you with us, Pastor Daniel Hughes. Um, How can people get in touch with you?
2: You can email me at PastorDHughes at gmail.com, PastorDHughes at gmail.com, or you can visit me on Facebook, Daniel Hughes. And uh, yeah, those are probably the, the easiest ways to, to get in touch.
1: Do you have any final thoughts?
2: Choose love. Choose love. Choose to risk something for love. Trust love. And my definition of trust comes out of the organizing world and says, trusting is choosing to risk something that you value to someone else's action. So I'm saying choose to risk something for love. And let's make that into a system. Let's institutionalize it.
1: Thank you, Daniel.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you're interested in supporting our work by either being a guest on our show, recommending a guest on our show, writing for our upcoming medium publication, or donating to our work, up on our website www.collectivepowermedia.com thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture and until next week drop the mic